for the last two Sundays, we've heard of Noah and his righteousness and faithfulness and obedience that was a product of God's grace to him. I said last week that you could make an argument that Noah was maybe the first hero of faith that we see in the redemptive story. And that's part of what makes the scriptures so interesting and so compelling that God uses imperfect and sinful people to accomplish his purposes, to carry out his mission. Scripture doesn't attempt to rewrite history, to sanitize the story. And we see that clearly in our scripture text for today. The account of Noah could have ended with this new, more faithful Adam leaving the ark, celebrating the mercy and salvation of the Lord, fulfilling God's commission to be fruitful and replenish the earth. What we find, however, is the reality that Noah was, in fact, human, just like you and I. When the door of the ark opens and Noah and his family disembark, the final scene, the final chapter of Noah's life is one of sin, of failure, continued family drama, not one of righteous triumph or holy faithfulness. From Genesis chapter 9, starting in verse 19, this is the rest of the story when it comes to Noah. And this is God's word to us. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders, and then they walked in backward and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. The lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Noah lived a total of 950 years, and then he died. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to understand all that you have for us in your holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May your kingdom come. May your will be done, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Noah, the one blameless and righteous man, leaves the ark, plants a vineyard, makes some wine, gets drunk, and passes out naked in his tent. 
you weren't familiar with the story of Noah, or if it's been a while since you've read the story, you might be experiencing a little bit of whiplash right now, and that's justified. Last week, Noah was the last hope for humanity. He was the last righteous person left. And this week, it's the Jerry Springer show. The account of Noah after the ark is really one of the more unique stories in Scripture. It's one that I've used many times to illustrate our human nature. But it's also a bit of a difficult story to understand, to make sense of. In the fall of of Noah, we see the shame and the destruction of sin, but we also see the faithfulness of God to sinners. As I mentioned last week, we want to be sure to make note of themes that are repeated throughout these passages of Genesis, these foundational chapters of Genesis. If there's something that we see repeated, it probably means it's a big deal. And again this week, we see how widespread, how all-encompassing the effects of sin are. So as we think about what God's Word is saying and why this particular story from Noah's life shows up in the text, uh, I want to share four thoughts with you today. And the first one is this, that no human person is worthy of your hope. There have been many attempts to make the story of Noah more palatable. Many uh, people have taken many runs at trying to salvage Noah's reputation. But the basic facts of the story are really clear. The one through whom God was re-establishing his creation in response to the sin of the world got drunk and passed out naked in his tent. Those are the, the basic facts of the story. Some, for example, have argued that Noah didn't intentionally get drunk. but There's just nothing in the text to establish that. We again have to remember that we're covering vast amounts of time in these early chapters in Genesis. And so this was quite likely years after the ark was opened. It wasn't likely, it wasn't just the next season. And so I think to assume that Noah was naive in his drinking insinuates that those who came before him hadn't already discovered what happens when you allow grape juice to ferment. I think humanity had likely discovered this previous to Noah. Uh, The plain reading of the text simply is that Noah made wine and got drunk. The reality is we shouldn't be surprised by Noah's poor decision-making, by his moral failure. In fact, we should never be surprised when sinners sin. It doesn't mean we celebrate it, it doesn't mean we embrace it, uh, but it means we have a proper view of humanity, a proper understanding of human nature. Why is there so much shock when Christian leaders are proven to have fallen into sin? I always want to ask people when when they respond with shock to stories like that that we hear, whether they've read the Bible or not. There's one thing that we've discovered already, nine chapters into Genesis. If there's one thing we've discovered, it's that everybody's a sinner. That Adam himself and now Noah Uh, gave in to sin and to its consequences. No human person is spared from the reach of sin and its effects. Some of the most morally pure 
people that I've met are also some of the most cutting and critical spirits that I've met. You notice that? At the same time, some addicts, some people with rap sheets a mile long have proven to have the most gracious and Christ-like spirit that I've had the pleasure of visiting with. All of us are infected by sin and are not worthy of the hope of another. Or we might say it a little bit differently, we all make lousy saviors. If your faith is built on the moral purity or good behavior of another person, your faith is in the wrong thing. If you're looking to me, for example, to be an inspiration, you're eventually going to be sorely disappointed because my heart is just like yours. I am a doubter of God's grace. I am prone to pride and to greed. I'm just like each of you. When people come into my office and share and confess things to me in confidence, I always, I always try to remind people that, that I will not be surprised or shocked by anything that you confess to me. Because I know what the Bible says about you and about your heart. Genesis 8, for example, just last week's text, the intention of man's heart is evil from youth. Or two chapters previously, in Genesis chapter 6, every intention of the thoughts of the human heart were only evil all the time. And I've I've been around long enough to know that the Bible is spot on in its assessment. And so I might be grieved by by sin that I see in in people that I love. I might be saddened when, when I see it. I might mourn when I see the pain that sin causes in our lives and in our families, but, but it's not surprising when sinners sin. That's what sinners do. There is only one who is worthy of our hope, the, the one who never sinned, the one who perfectly fulfilled the law, perfectly loved, perfectly cared for his neighbor. No human person is worthy of your hope. The second thing I want you to see in our text today is that that nakedness represents shame. This is imagery that we've seen already uh, in the scriptures. Verse 21 says, He became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked, told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backward, covered their father's naked body, Their faces were turned the other way so they would not see their father naked. It's not that Moses is so infatuated with this word naked. He's using it repeatedly because it's symbolic of something. This should remind us of something that we've seen already in Genesis. Genesis chapter 3 verse 10 uh, says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. This is Adam speaking. I was afraid because I was naked. And so I hid myself. And God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree? Adam and Eve were in the garden and they were naked, but they didn't know that they were naked until their sin brought a dark cloud of shame over their existence. The nakedness of our story is emphasized because of this connection, because it's symbolic of something 
bigger. Mo- Moses is showing that the continued effect of sin in bringing shame over humanity. Just as Adam's shame in the garden would go on to have terrible repercussions, so would Noah's. I'm not going to say a lot more about that right now. We'll get to that again later. But I want to make sure that you see this imagery, this connection in our text and why uh, Genesis chapter 9 emphasizes it uh, so much. Uh, the The third thing that I want to point out about our text is this, that how we respond to the sin of others matters. Look at verse 24. When Noah awoke from his wine... And found out what his youngest son had done to him. He said, cursed be Canaan. The lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. Based upon Noah's strong reaction to the way that his sons handled his situation, many have have assumed that there may actually have been more to the story than what meets the eye. If you're interested, you can Google it. There's any number of sordid Uh, and explicit conclusions that you can find. Uh, Everything from, uh, I'll give you just a couple quick ones. Uh, Everything from Ham, uh, rather than just seeing his father, uh, some theorize that he actually castrated his father, uh, all the way to uh, rumors uh, of incest, all sorts of things that float around the internet. Uh, But again, we are bound to the text. The text itself doesn't imply that there is really anything More to the story than simply Ham responding inappropriately to his father's situation. So what exactly is so appalling about Ham's response? To understand that, we have to try to put our minds inside uh, inside the mind of somebody who lived in their time and place. We have to understand the cultural differences, the differences between our culture today and theirs, and namely that they lived in what has often been called an honor culture. Now, it's a term that has been used in a number of different ways, but for our purposes today, we can think of an honor culture as, as a culture in which one of the worst social sins is for you to bring dishonor upon your family. Uh, we, we don't necessarily understand that in our context today, but, but, but follow, uh, follow me here. Uh, maintaining the honor and the integrity of your family, and especially your father, uh, was chief among all virtues. We see this in the Ten Commandments, right? Honor your father and mother. Or in Deuteronomy chapter 27, it says, Cursed is the man who dishonors his father and mother. So this is a, it's a bigger deal in their culture than it might be in ours today. Ham saw his father's shame and disgrace, and he did nothing. In fact, he went out and he told others about it. What was he mocking? Was he laughing? We, we don't know for sure what Ham's response was, but, but his response to his father's sin brought dishonor upon his father, failing to have his father's back, and instead telling others about what he saw was one of the most dishonorable actions that, sh- that, that Ham could have taken in that culture. Now, lest we be judgmental about another culture and what they value, uh, we need to recognize that we have our own 
social penalties for dishonorable actions in our culture today. For example, there's, there's a segment of our culture that uh, thinks that it's supremely dishonorable to, uh, for example, refuse to call someone by their preferred pronouns. They'll label you as hateful, seek to exert social punishment against you. At the same time, there's another segment of our society uh, that, for example, uh, thinks that taking a knee during the national anthem is supremely dishonorable. Many have argued that you should lose your job or even I, I've heard arguments that people should, it should be against the law, that there should, be, uh, there should be jail time for people who do something like that. These are just two examples from our modern culture battles to illustrate what every culture does. We uh, impose certain social penalties for dishonor within our cultures. Whatever it is that we value, when somebody goes against that, we impose social penalties. And that's what you see happening uh, when, when Ham brings dishonor to his father. Of course, it, it, this is such a significant thing that, that Noah goes on to curse Ham's descendants, namely his son Canaan. We'll talk more about that in, in a few minutes, but, but I want to revisit this significant point that's so uh, important for us that, that we might be tempted to just pass over, and that's the reality that it's not only our own sin that matters, but how we respond to the sin of others. There are several ways that we might be, uh, be tempted or we might tend to respond to other people's sin. Uh, we might respond condescendingly, uh, pointing it out, telling others, gossiping. It's a common response to sin. We might use it as the occasion for pride. We might pat ourselves on the back and say, at least I'm not like that guy. Uh, other times we might respond in shock, shock over the gravity of what we see, over our perception of that person's holiness. We might also use it as justification and say, well, if they did it, certainly I can do it. But there's, there's something more, there's something powerful that we see in our text today. And that's a different reaction, a reaction that seeks to cover the shame that accompanies sin. It's a gracious response. It's a redemptive response. It's a response that, that isn't shocked, that doesn't use the sin of another for our own advantage, for our own gain, to feel better about ourselves. But, but that seeks the good of our neighbor in spite of their sin. Verse 23, Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. And then they walked in backward and covered their father's naked body. This is not them justifying what Noah did. This is so important. There's, there's a difference between condoning sin, between saying that it's all right, and simply addressing the shame that is caused by sin. You may have noticed the, the mirror imagery that we see here from the Garden of Eden. God covered the shame of Adam and Eve. Remember the story. And Shem and Japheth cover the shame of their father. We don't pretend like it's not sin. We don't say that it's something that it's not, but we also we also don't need to be agents of embarrassment or continued shame. I've discovered in my years in ministry that 
There are a segment of Christians who live in the spirit of Ham, who just long for the sins of others to be found out, who take perverse and wicked pride in spreading news of someone else's sin. It's wicked. It's cursed. The way of God, the righteous response to sin is to work for their redemption and to cover their shame. When you hear something juicy and your first response is to pass it along, that's the spirit of Ham. When you respond by passing the story along rather than acting redemptively, doing what you can to help that person, that's the spirit of Ham. And, and, and I, think, I think this is something that exists in all of us to some degree. Something we need to repent of. Is my, is my heart for sinners to get what they've got coming to them? Or is my heart for them to be redeemed and set free? How we respond to the sin of others matters, and it actually has spiritual implications. The fourth thing that I want you to see today is this. That God uses the sin of Noah and the dishonor of Ham to reveal his redemptive plan. Verse 24 of our text says, When Noah awoke from his wine, found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, and then he's going to give us one, uh, one curse and two sorts of, of blessings. He says, Cursed be Canaan, the son of Ham, the lowest of slaves, and he will, uh, will he be to his brothers. And then he said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem, may Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. So how does Noah respond to the dishonor that was brought about, uh, upon him by his son? He, he curses Canaan, the son of Ham. Now, we have to be careful here not to say more than what Scripture says about this. Commentators and theologians are divided over exactly why Noah goes this direction. And the truth of the matter is we don't know for sure. What we do know is that two brothers who did right by their father receive a blessing of sorts. And the brother who dishonored his father receives a curse. He says that Ham's son Canaan will be the lowest of slaves, enslaved to his brothers. What we know is that this curse that Noah gives anticipates or, or points forward to the judgment that would come against the Canaanites at the hands of the Israelites generations later. Shem was the brother through whom the Israelites would come, would descend, and ultimately through whom Jesus would descend. And so however we understand the events of this curious story from Genesis 9, we see clearly that God is using the sin of Noah and the dishonor of Ham to set up, to prop up the story of redemption. He is isolating this one particular line from Noah's family tree, this one son of Noah, to be that line that he would give special care and attention to preserving their identity as part of his, his plan to redeem the world. 
It's so important that we recognize all the way back here in Genesis, still in what we might call the, the primeval section of the book, we have God intentionally moving things forward toward the redemption and salvation of the world. There's one more thing that I think is helpful about these three descendants. I want you to notice verse 27 of our text. It says, May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. It's an interesting verse. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. Now, tent is, is their house, right? This is not, it's not what they go camping in. This is their house. So may Japheth live, may he dwell in the houses of Shem. It's an interesting statement. When we look, at, when we look forward into Genesis 10, verses 2 through 5 that give us the family tree of the sons of Japheth. And what we find is that Japheth's sons spread out to the north and to the west through what, uh, in, in, in modern-day sense, we would call uh, modern-day Turkey, over into Greece, uh, Italy, all the way to Spain. So uh, through, throughout Europe, essentially, is where Japheth's descendants move. And so that might shine a little bit of light on verse 27. As Noah blesses them, he says, May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion about this, but I think it, it comes into focus when we think about the ministry and the history of the early church. Listen to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, we read this. He came, speaking of Jesus, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He came to that which was his own, Shem, Shem and his descendants. But his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive it, who received him? Japheth, his family, his descendants. To all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This imagery of Shem being first, the Jewish people, the Israelites being first, as the people through whom God would, would save the world, but, but they, by and large, refused to receive him. And so we see this shift to Asia Minor, to modern-day Turkey, to Greece, to Rome, throughout Europe, the, as the, sort of the epicenter of Japheth's descendants. And it was Japheth's family who ultimately did receive the Savior. And as Noah says, began to dwell in the tents of Shem. God uses the sin of Noah, the dishonor of Ham, to reveal his redemptive plan for blessing the world. And he would send the Redeemer, his son Jesus Christ, and Jesus would come as, as, a, as a shame-covering, sin-defeating Savior. You see, those brutal Roman soldiers would strip Jesus naked, just like Noah, for everyone watching to see. The true and better Noah would be dishonored in every way imaginable, yet without sin. 
and he would die for Noah's sin. And for Ham's sin, for your sin and for mine, he experienced shame so that our sin could be dealt with, so that our shame could be covered up. Paul says that all of you who have been baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. And so while we are far more Noah and Ham than we would like to admit, we live with these words of God's promise. That God doesn't see our shame, but instead sees the finished work of his son, Jesus Christ, the true and better Noah, in our place. By faith in Christ, Noah's shame, your shame, my shame is covered. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, we We thank you that while we deserve to be ridiculed, while we deserve to have our shame exposed, that you instead sent your son to pay for our sin, to cover our shame. We thank you for the promise that for all who are in Christ, our shame is covered by Christ forever. God, may your word bring us to the cross today as we see things within our own hearts that we need to leave before you today. May we do so. We repent of our sin. We flee to the cross for your mercy, for your forgiveness. So help us to believe your word today when it says that for all who are in Christ, we are covered, our sin And our shame is no more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.